severely messed Artists like their boots are torn to shreds The government will spoil your hopes and dreams By offering a useless retreat and scheme There's such amazing talent, why can't you see That the government has decimated the industry And now the years of hard work have been thrown away Just get a real job. Hello and welcome to episode 119 of Just Get A Real Job podcast. I'm of course your host, Jamie McKinley, and today isn't just a normal podcast day, but today's actually our third birthday, so it's three years ago to the day exactly since we first launched this podcast, since we first put an episode of this podcast out, which... It's kind of crazy to me because life was so different back then. We were still in lockdown. COVID was still sort of a thing. I just graduated from a MA in screenwriting. I'm not a writer now, so the idea that I ever was is kind of crazy to me. It just feels like longer than three years almost, but also it doesn't feel like any time at all. But I think what's more sort of mind-blowing for me is just the journey this podcast has taken me on on a personal level. I say this very often to guests and in the intros and stuff but getting to do this is genuinely such a pleasure and I get so much out of this like it brings me so much happiness you know getting to speak to the guests we get to have on this is is truly a a joy and I've learned so much about myself and about the world that I work in and just the world in general. I'm aware this is going to descend into a little bit of a cringy soppy monologue. You're not wrong. But, you know, it's just such a joy getting to do this, getting to do this with one of my best friends, Elliot, as well. It's a really special thing, and I'm very grateful to you for listening to this podcast every week and for just tuning in and giving us feedback and being involved. Like, this podcast wouldn't be what it is without the listeners and without the amazing guests. And Increase soppiness. When I launched this, I wanted it to be a creative toolkit, and I sort of started off by speaking to my mates so you know to get to have done this in front of live audiences and to do it so consistently it's just a you know I'd never have imagined the journey it's been on over the last three years so just want to say a massive thank you to everyone that's supported and championed this podcast and that's come on and chatted to me and that's just been involved in any way insert violence playing whether that's from sharing it on Instagram or dropping me a message to tell me that it's inspired you in some way like all of it just means so much to me and Elliot so you know thank you to everyone for everything over the last three years here's to many more years I guess but this week's episode couldn't mark the third year of this podcast any better and it really was a real privilege to have this conversation but joining us on the podcast this week is the incredible Jay Spooner who is the chief executive and core artist and founding member or one of the founding members anyway of Unlimited Theatre Company which has existed for 27 years the work that Unlimited have done is wide ranging and very inspiring but what's so interesting about this conversation particularly is that Jay is actually leaving the creative industries that start next year to go study law specialising in international human rights so it was lovely that Jay was able to speak to me very freely and very honestly about their experiences in this industry but what's also quite incredible is that Unlimited Theatre are sort of ending on their own terms and they're basically now moving to a model of grants and leaving money for the next generation of theatre makers and creatives after an incredible journey themselves it was honestly such a I've said already and I know I'm repeating myself but it really was a joy to speak with Jay we spoke about everything from how to successfully start 
and then run a theatre company for the long term, how to run a team, you know, getting shot at in the jungles of Papua New Guinea, directing the CBB's Christmas show, how the arts can work better with other sectors, advice for other people coming through. It's a really rich conversation, packed full of insights and... I'm sure you're going to love this one as much as I loved recording it. But yeah, thank you, everyone. Happy birthday, just get a real job. And enjoy episode 119 with the brilliant Jay Spooner. Well, Jay, it's lovely to have you on the podcast tonight. I'm really excited for this conversation. You are, are currently like the core artist and what, what I was looking for the word there, I was going to say chief, I was going to say CEO, but kind of chief executive of Unlimited Theatre, which is going for a massive sort of transition at the moment. You started this company like 27 years ago with mm-hmm. some other people, pretty amazing career, going to have lots to say, but do you want to just sort of firstly introduce yourself for the listeners? Thanks, Jamie. It's really nice to be here with you and the listeners. And yeah, I mean, job titles are funny, right? I've always said that you can have whatever job title you like. It's the job description that goes with it. You know, what is it that you actually do? (laughs) And I have a different job title depending on the day of the week is, you know, I'm started as a performer and as an actor, I've become a director, I'm a writer, I'm a chief executive, I'm a core artist, sometimes I'm a director of human spaceflight operations. <laughs> Unlike our Slack channels, I think I'm there as chief maker-upper. Or... So it really does depend on the day what it is, but that comes with the territory, I think, in terms of setting up and running your own company. That, Like I say, the job title doesn't really matter it's just what other people need you to be on any given day really yeah i know i think that's really interesting especially with sort of what this whole podcast is kind of about because often people get very caught up on roles and it's like well it's really about what you're doing because you can be the same role as someone and be doing five times the work or been doing totally different things and at the end of the day it's just sort of like i don't know it's just the way we sort of are in the creative industries for some reason it's very titles have become such a big part of it and a lot of the time they're just titles. I totally agree. And there can be a lot of assumptions that are made about what a job title means that you do or you are. And there's a lot of people that maybe work at the top of and in quite senior positions that have a very inflated sense of what their job title means. And a lot of people that might not be very respectful, actually, of what other people's job titles means when we're all in this together, right? No, 100%. And obviously, I'm not saying you need hierarchies in this industry, but to an extent, you need people with the experience to do a certain job. But I think the best companies are where you, you're made to feel empowered by someone who might have worked 20 years longer than you. But you know I mean, it's not like they're above you. It's just that they have more knowledge on certain things than you. I think I totally, they're always the best environments to work in. Yeah, well, I totally agree. Yeah. Well, usually on this podcast, I sort of start by asking people about their earliest creative memories. But before mm. we go into that, I wanted to sort of ask you about... The fact that you're about to sort of move away from this industry, which I don't think we'd had anyone on the podcast that's so, you know, soon going to be off. So tell us a bit about that and the reasons behind it. And like, just sort of be honest about your experience in this industry as well. Yeah, no, of course. Yeah. So I'm going to do a little bit of backstory to who I am in the context of Unlimited, which is the company. So Unlimited Theatre was set up, let's say, 27 years ago. We have this sort of mythical 1st of January 1997 date that we all, I think we all all gather around going. We'd all known each other for a while. We'd all met at the University of Leeds at the Workshop Theatre where we'd all studied. And some of us graduated in 1995, some of us graduated in 1996, which is, what year were you born, Jamie? 96. (laughs) 
I'm so, sorry. But... No, no, no. It's good. It's good. Hey, if you're looking as good as we are in another 27 years, <laughs> I'll be pleased. I'll be pleased. <laughs> so we graduated then and decided that we wanted to keep making work together. We'd had this incredible experience of making theatre together in quite experimental ways, I suppose, and wanted to keep doing that. So 1997, first January is the start date. And we've been through a lot since then. The company has massively evolved, you know, it evolved from it being the six core co-founding artists that set it up then through lots of iterations, people staying with the company, leaving the company, staying connected, but moving on, coming back for different projects, developing a whole massive family of freelancers and associate artists that we've worked with over that time but also administrators and producers and executive directors and all sorts of people to then a few years ago in two three years ago when the last of the original founders that wasn't me moved on Claire Duffy who is based in Edinburgh actually um, Mm. up in your part of the world and we decided that instead of replacing her as, you know, going one co-artistic director, we were going to open up that opportunity, sort of reflect where we'd come from and actually work with five new artists from another generation, most of them, all of them younger than me, so that we became six again. At the time, I was the artistic director. You know, that was the job title that Mm. I had, I'd taken, I'd been given. And we wanted to retire that as a job title, make it entirely unhierarchical in that way. What is shared leadership in the, you know, post a lockdown period of a pandemic? I'm not doing a very good job of because it's like there's so much history here, but it's been a lot. No, you're doing it. You're doing a a very good job of summarizing. Please continue. Don't, don't, honestly, it's really interesting. (laughs) Okay. But it's, it just feels really overwhelming and honesty at the time, because it's like, it's a, there's a, there's so much that's happened in all of that time. So you can't really describe it. You know, you can go by your major achievements or you know Mm. flagship productions or whatever but you were talking about you know how I've got to moving away and that's in part because I love what I do really love what I do I work with incredible extraordinary people I've been able to by running our own company mostly do exactly what I want as a writer as a director as a performer as an artist and then as someone running a company and creating an environment for other people to work in that is fulfilling and safe and healthy and hopefully very enjoyable and in which people get paid it's one of my favorite parts of my job creating work for other people to to be able to make a living out of doing this but so last year And we've been a national portfolio organisation with Arts Council England for quite a long time. So I think we've been regularly funded since 2008 and two years ago with no no warning, actually, in the process at all. So we've never been told that we're at risk or that there might be a possibility that you're being you're going to be defunded. So unlike, for example, English National Opera, we've basically been in special measures for as long as for, for like a decade, who could have reasonably expected to be cut, but then obviously have friends in high places that can just sort of go, no, don't do that. Okay. But we'd only ever been told as a small organisation, you know, at the other end of the spectrum of organisations that are there, that we were massively overachieving this brilliantly run organisation. But we were unsuccessful in that application to remain in the National Portfolio Organisation, which after that period of time made it very difficult for us, even though we talked about it as a group of artists and producers, we could go to a project to project model. The inhonesty, the energy required to go back 
to that now, particularly now in England, where the funding environment, and I understand it's the same in Scotland or similar in Scotland, but mm. my experience is obviously in England, is so difficult for artists to make work. The touring model is really increasingly broken. There's much less money inside the system. It's very, very difficult. We all know this to to set up and to make new work that the decision was look it's 25 years i know we said 27 years but let's call it 25 because that's a nice quarter of a century <laughs> number right the company's based in leeds and this year leeds is sort of being a, a city of culture it has this leeds 2023 thing which we've been a part of being commissioned through that i turn 50 in two weeks time as well so there's that as a nice number and it felt like we had an opportunity here to take control of our own ending, if you like, and go, look, this has been a really, really amazing time. How difficult is it to write a really good, satisfying ending? Actually, you know, you can, how many shows or TV programs or whatever have you seen where you've gone, oh, the setup's great, a call to adventure's amazing, I know who the hero is, I know what's at stake for everyone, the middle's all really mm. meaty and fulfilling, and then you get to the end and the ending's just like, ah, oh, they've done this because they know or they want the executive producers to commission a second series or whatever. And they've really, they've really hobbled themselves with the ending. Or Good endings are really hard to write, actually, right? So we wanted to, yeah, take control of that and go, we're going to end here now. We're going to bring everyone together. We had a beautiful finale event in Leeds last weekend where everyone that's been involved in the company came together, all of the current artists all made and presented work. We did outdoors and indoors events, shows, performances, installations. We had a party basically. And it was a really beautiful way to bring everyone together to finish that. So that's where I'm at right now. And in the middle of sort of doing planning that for the last year, having what is basically an existential crisis. I've had the most boring midlife crisis that anyone's ever had. I'm literally running away from the circus in order to go back to school. I'm going to go back and do a master's in law in January, specialising in international human rights. Um, that's amazing, though. <laughs> that's that's brilliant. I think it's lovely when people not change, but like they go and do something new later in life or just at any point because there's such this like narrative that we all sort of in, internalize I think it's changing now because of how sort of flexible work is and the way that the gig economy operates but like sort of people going off and changing careers entirely well certainly personally for me that feeling like I've had a really excellent career over the last 27 years there's literally nothing that I well ask me again in another year but I had to really ask myself really hard, is there anything that I haven't achieved here that I really would regret not trying to do? And the answer at the moment for me is no. I feel like I've really... So the idea of then going, I've got a whole other career, hopefully, ahead of me doing something else, sort of related and using all the storytelling stuff. But yeah, I'm genuinely really excited about it. Like I say, ask me in a year. <laughs> No, that's incredible. Well, I mean, there's, as we said earlier, there's so much to unpack in this episode, but I'm going to get you to, we just spoke about the end. I'm mm -hmm. going to get you to go back to the start. Was there sort of your earliest creative memory? Do you remember as a youngster, like, was there a moment that you thought, I quite like this creative malarkey? I thought about this a bit and I'm old enough, Jamie, that I just can't remember that far back. I don't think I've got enough like storage on my hard drive. But I do, I've always, I always wanted to be an actor. I always loved the performing part of that. And I think that's a very common thing for a lot of people in the industry, right? But I'd always done it. I'd been lucky enough to be in an environment where there was 
I mean, at school, there's always stuff to do, isn't there? I went to a Catholic primary school because my my mum's Irish and Catholic, and there was a production of Deflator Mouse that was done in this all boys Catholic primary school that I went to. So really, I'm madly ambitious looking back on it now, and I only really remember this because there's a picture of me and my brother both dressed in drag, basically performing this quite complex opera but I remember at the time I really loved the ambition of what it was that we were doing and sort of being put centre stage and doing this mad mad thing uh, with what I remember being I mean if you were to actually have any video footage of it from back then which would have been like 1979 or something so there wouldn't be thank god it was probably really shit but my memory of it is there was extraordinary so maybe that I wouldn't say that that defined what I wanted to do but I think always having had the opportunity to take part in that sort of stuff and enjoying it meant that, yeah, that <laughs> being in drag aged nine was <laughs> my formative experience. No, well, I appreciate you thinking back and re- and remembering an answer for this question. Uh, apologies if it caused any difficulties. No, that's a, that's a really nice answer. And the sort of second part of this question as well is a kind of about how where you're from has influenced yeah. you as a creative. And I'm going to sort of be cheeky because I'm going to get you to talk about Leeds because obviously that's, I know that's not where you're from, but I know that's formed a big part of the company and your identity. But if you want to start off where you're actually from, which I don't know the answer to, and then you can talk about Leeds as well. Yes, I was born in London and I'm a very proud Londoner. I think London, I understand why it gets a hard time for a lot of people that don't live inside, but it's also an extraordinary city. You know, it's this amazing melting pot where everything and anything is possible for you to meet and experience. But nothing in my life made sense to me until I moved to Leeds to study there when I was 19, because it was only when I got there and I met all these other people. It was you know, pre-internet, so you you only ever met the people that you were growing up with or around. We didn't travel a lot. And basically, the world was, it still is in lots of ways, but the world was particularly racist, misogynist, homophobic. There's an awful lot of prejudice in the world that was never challenged in the environment that I was growing up in. And when I got to Leeds and suddenly met all these other people, it's like, oh, you're my people. I don't have to sort of pretend anymore about who I am or... We can talk about these things and it's all okay. So Leeds was really, really important and formative for me as a person. Then, like I said, we set up the company there and I lived there for 12 years, sort of forgot to leave. So yeah, Leeds is really, really important and special to me as a creative and still is because the company's based there, spend a lot of time there. It's full of brilliant artists and people that are making work. So yeah. Yeah. Did you think it was the place or the people that made it different? Because obviously London is seen as quite multicultural and quite not progressive, but obviously, you know, it does tend to vote Labour more than some of the other parts of the country in England, for example, or, you know, just looking at it from as a Scottish person, like, because London's so different to the rest of the UK as well. So do you think it was the place, Leeds being a sort of different place, or do you think it was also just being in an environment around people that are more like-minded? I think it was probably being the age that I was as well. and also so when did I move to Leeds that was 90 so early mid 90s but the world was literally beginning to open up at that stage we're in the final Mm. stages the death throes that went on for too long of you know a very long-serving conservative government Um, feels like we're hopefully in that now but I don't want to speak too soon no it honestly really feels like right now there's a lot of echoes so when the company was set up in 1997 remember that was that first that was that big landslide Labour Tony Blair Mm -hmm. new Labour moment and it definitely feels like now if there's a big similarity, like a really long period of conservative and Tory rule in the UK 
I know it's it's slightly different in Scotland with devolvement, but also you've had yeah. you know a lot of interference from mm. a London-centric government at the moment. But it's really exciting. And that period when we were there, I think it was probably the time and the people more than the specific place that was Leeds, but because of the age that I was and the environment that I was in. And not only was our education, you know, we didn't pay any fees at that stage so it was incredibly affordable but we would also when we left we could access in 96 97 both the dole and housing benefit now that wasn't mm. much it was like 35 quid income support and 35 quid housing benefit a week so we literally lived in me and paul one of the other founders lived together in a house that literally had no furniture in it it was just empty so the extent when when we came and moved in the landlord went where's all your stuff we said this is it we had literally like a bag of books and some pants each and he, he went what well, you've got nothing he said where are you going to sleep he said well we'll be fine and he got us a couple of mattresses and put those down in there but that was it <laughs> but that was fine because we were we didn't need anything else at the time if we had somewhere to live and enough money to mm. feed ourselves in really sensible ways there was at least that support which isn't there now for no. people i can talk a little bit more about the deal we made with ourselves as a company about sort of the length of period the length of time that we would spend using that opportunity that we had to be supported both through the housing benefit and the dole in order to put ourselves in a position where we didn't have to take that anymore mm. by generating enough money that's what that's what i just told you haven't i that's basically what we did when we started we said <laughs> look this is the opportunity that we have but we set ourselves a target in nine months time we will put ourselves in a position use this opportunity because we don't want to be you know exploiting this system but we want to be generating enough income from the work that we're doing as a company of six people that is the equivalent of us getting 70 quid a week through our own work because that would be a measure of how we were i suppose paying back yeah. what that support meant at the time i think that's so interesting like the way you're sort of acknowledging it in such a conscious way as well or where at the time because obviously i think in, i don't know for sure the statistics but i know in france and other countries they have more support for like artists who are starting their career and stuff yeah. and one of the biggest the reason that this industry and i say this industry and i know it's a very ma massive term but I, one of the reasons i think the creative industries are so inaccessible there's lots of reasons but i think class is such a big factor still and it's because if you don't have like an income from family or you know you you kind of born with money or have like the means to an income then it's so hard to access this industry because often you're having to do it in your spare time or if you're not working in it you're having to do you know what I mean and it just puts people at such a disadvantage so I know it wasn't quite an arts benefit you were on but the, the idea that you could access from the state what you needed is so important yes but I think this is where so there's a lot of talk about how it works in France and how it could work here and there should be a universal some income for artists but there should just be a universal income for everybody of course you should, yeah. it should be that anyone should be able to access that and be supported to live right because it's hard to find work wherever but you mm -hmm. are 100 right that this industry in particular is really really bad for it it remains and i think we've seen this particularly through covid and the amount of freelancers that have left the sector and the industry mm -hmm. because they weren't supported they didn't get the support from the sector and or the government that they needed in order to stay this had a massive brain drain but that's that's been the case for a long time. I totally agree. There should be a universal yeah. basic income that everyone gets access to. And that would do a huge amount to address what you're talking about. No, for sure. And obviously, I know I'm maybe speaking about stuff through more of an art lens, but it's for the podcast. But I, I do completely yeah. agree. There's lots of, you know, other, you know, just in 
January, right? And I think most of the progressive people working in tech with the sort of AI, which we don't need to get into because it's a massive conversation, obviously, but that's going to change the way we live a lot in the next 10 to 15 years, probably five years, maybe even sooner. And, you know, they all, they are repeatedly saying like, we're going to need some sort of universal basic income because the way we live at the moment, is not going to be sustainable in, in the future because there will be so many people just out of work or needing to retrain. So no, it's very true. Very true. So you're talking about funding this company and stuff. You, can you just take us through the, the first year? Like, what was that like? We called it, no, the year before we called our dark year because we were all working like jobs, all sorts of jobs, whatever it was that we could do to make ends meet, but also trying to make time for each other to make shows. But because we were working different jobs at different times, you know, that was really hard. And that was why we said, let's let's stop all of that. We literally signed a piece of paper all together saying, this hmm. is what we commit to doing for and with each other for the next, I think we signed it for two years, because that felt like the amount of time that we could meaningfully commit to trying to do this thing so that first year was kind of brilliant because we were released we released ourselves from all the other things that we didn't want to do and again just sort of recognizing that we could only do that because of the support from the state that we received at the time and to restate as well that we made a very clear deal again, that we signed. So it was a partnership agreement, basically, mm. that this is what we'll do. This is what we'll commit to. This is the notice, the period that we'll give to each other if we choose not to do it. But it just sort of made us secure in knowing that as a group of friends, but also working professionally together, we could be secure about moving forwards together. Because I think it's always the case, isn't it? It's, it's a very common experience that people may be setting up companies. One of the big tensions is, well, we're going to do this, but I know as well, you've got that thing going on over there that might become a thing, or you want to mm. be a director and that's going to be, I don't know, it just felt important to us to make that commitment to each other so that we could be secure in all of that. And it was, you know, it was exciting and it was fun and we were young and we were making work that we thought was changing the world so yeah i mean i'd really recommend it <laughs> if you can get someone to give you 70 quid a week to pay your pay your rent <laughs> i don't even know if that would cover these days you, you'd go to the you do one shop and it's like 20 quid now do you know what i mean you, not even a week shop just like some bits for it the equivalent of yeah the, <laughs> yeah exactly uh, <laughs> yeah should we look it up in today's terms <laughs> in today's so, what is it in today's money dear <laughs> no, I know completely what you mean. Do you remember the moment that you get you guys as a as the six of you? Do you remember the moment that you thought we'd actually made this work? Now this is working. That's a good question. I don't think that we ever thought like that. I think we were always very driven to run professionally and as a company. So we were always looking forwards, which is big credit to Liz, who was one of us at the time, who was because we all gave each other we all agreed we would have specific roles and Liz was the most organized out of all of us and you need that person but she was our company manager and she would crack the whip and she would make but so yeah we were always looking forward and planning and or being in the present and enjoying that and I don't think I don't think you ever make it do you no it's like when people ask what are your favorite shows that you've made it's like well it's always the one that you've 
just made or are making right now because yeah. that's the most or that's how it should be it feels if you were to ask other people i think that were around us at the time i think they would definitely be able to go oh i think it was that moment so i would imagine that people would say there was a show we made that we did at the fringe festival in i'm gonna say 1999 mm. so two years after so which won a fringe first so chris thorpe one of the founders Amazing. saw chris is chris is doing a show at the royal court like at christmas he's a he's a brilliant and very well established writer now but i saw that and going on the royal courts stuff is going seven time fringe first winner chris thorpe i'm like yeah it's quite a lot isn't it but the first one he was with us when he wrote the show called static and i think people would point to that going that was when we sort of came through and then the following mm. year we made a show called neutrino which also won a fringe first and i think people would go that was a moment where that company got a lot of traction. And I think we were very lucky in that. We were making good work, but I think it's really hard to do that now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, two French firsts in a row at the Edinburgh Festival was very amazing. Yeah. yeah, it's really good. But I love your answer saying we didn't really think about it like that. We were thinking in the present and in the future because I think that's really important and I struggle with that because this podcast isn't my full-time thing and it's not my career as such but with a podcast there's not really an end goal because you just put an episode out every week and then it's like well I've done 118 but then it's it doesn't really I mean I guess you can go up with downloads and stuff but that's not really what you're in it for so it's a sort of weird thing you're like wait it because you you, they're not really working towards anything it's like you're just sort of constantly doing it and being present and it, it's a good thing but it's a very weird thing to get your head around because I think often as humans you sort of go well what's the target is it like you know what I mean and it's, it's weird I think that, that's really you're doing the right thing in my stupid opinion and I think that's how I've always functioned as well it's like you can't if you come into this going right my end goal is to be the artistic director of name whatever big organization you want to be the artistic director of and there are people in this sector who work in that way and you will know who they are and you know there's this careerist mm. way through it but they're also mostly the people that can afford to do it from the outset right that's not that's not universally true but mostly true mm. that's a really inauthentic quite dull way to do it and I would I mean I hope this isn't just me kidding myself you know getting to the stage in a life that I'm at right now but I think you'd get bored wouldn't you go well there's only so much and so far you can do or go in this industry if you're only doing it for that end goal reason then it's I don't know what I'm saying there actually but I kind of I get what you mean I think one of the most common answers on this podcast is when people give advice which is our question at the end but they always say like most, I think the most common answer is enjoy the process or try to enjoy the process. And I think that's one of the biggest takeaways I've got from doing this podcast and speaking to so many amazing people in this industry is that like, you just have to enjoy it. Cause I always struggle with that question because I'm a script editor in TV and often like your boss, and it's an okay question because you're doing, they're trying to develop you, but they're like, so what would you like to do? Like, where, what's your five-year sort of plan? And I, I struggle with that because I'm like, I love doing this right now, but I don't really know exactly where it's going to take me. And I think that's quite exciting, to be honest, to have that approach to it. My, my sort of line on this is that it's, talk, it's called a career. There's never mm. been a better word to describe what it is that any of us do in whatever sex we work. You literally career from one thing to the next. Everyone's making it up as they go along. An opportunity mm. comes up and you have a choice that you have to make about whether you do or don't do it. And if you overthink it in a way, it's like, oh, is that going to be good for me if, you know, in order to get to, if, especially when, in honesty, you don't know where it is you want to go. Yeah. Then, yeah, you've just got to do the things that make sense in that moment and at that time. I would never have, if you'd asked me 27 years ago, if you described to me 27 years ago what I've done 
now, there's no way I would have been able to go, oh, yeah, I absolutely intended to go and do a show in the jungles of Papua New Guinea where I would be shot at. Or I absolutely intended to direct the Christmas shows for the CBeebies channel, which would be broadcast on BBC One on Christmas Day. Or now no, I'm sort of singing. Or I would never have thought that I'd be 50 years old and wearing a spacesuit in front of people. At... <laughs> None of those things were part of my... <laughs> career plan but i've loved all of them well i mean you just you just mentioned three things that i have on my list to sort of <laughs> to mention but let's do the first one tell us about Papua new guinea and getting shot at quickly and then... <laughs> so that was we went through a whole period in fact this was this would have been off the back of those uh, edinburgh experiences in the sort of early mid 2000s when the british council were doing a lot of work to take really quite bold live performance work across the world and into places that was unexpected but that was part of the british council performing art showcase we've been invited to the philippines actually to go and do this show static out which this show static was about it was written in response to the conflict in kosovo in 1999 it was about how we receive media information mm. about those conflicts how sort of disconnected we are from it but it was intercut with a monologue from a woman who was walking through the Kosovan landscape to discover the trigger warning, the body of her killed husband. <laughs> Cheery stuff. So actually a lot funnier than I've just made it sound as well. But we invited out to the Philippines to do that there. And the British High Commissioner's partner in Papua New Guinea heard that we were in the area. And forgive me for not knowing exactly how far it is, but I think it's like it's a couple of thousand miles from the Philippines, actually. But we were in the area. So why don't you come out and do it here while you're here as well? So we went out to the to Papua New Guinea, which was one of the really extraordinary experience, but ended up being yeah, in a place called Bougainville, part of a big conflict. There was a UN peacekeeping force there. We were wearing suits black suits white people in black suits in a jungle in papua new guinea doing monologues about a european experience of receiving media images of conflict to people that were in the middle of resolving their own civil war and some people in the jungle whilst we were there with like the un general the british high commissioner an audience of some local people that we'd gone out and found because it's like not coming all this way to just do it for the un general yeah there was some people there they're like what who are you what the fuck is going on <laughs> just fired a few shots while we were doing the show and i remember at the time me and claire who were performing the show just sort of didn't even really look at each other we just sort of stopped really briefly like, is this okay? And at the end, the British High Commissioner said, well, that was, that." for a moment there, I thought we were going to have a pair of dead actors on our hands. It's like, glad oh, good. Hell. I know. Um, uh, I'm glad you survived to tell the tale to me. So, so yeah, that, we've uh, had some extraordinary experiences working across the world with the British Council. And to go back to our earlier point, you may not have got that experience if you had planned it so much. So Again, yeah, would never went, oh yeah, Papua New Guinea, we should tour there. <laughs> yeah. And and tell us about the CBBC Christmas show things that you ended up directing and stuff on BBC One, because obviously I know TV and theatre interlink, but it's kind of a slightly different medium. So how did that all come about and how did you find that? Because you did quite a lot of them, didn't you? I did seven of them. This is a really interesting, it's a really interesting question. How did that come about? And again, this wasn't planned. I'd never thought, oh, what I want to do is get into directing for telly. And in fact, that's a separate thing, actually. I got asked by someone that I knew to join 
the committee for the children's media conference because I'd started making work mm. when I had children as many artists do for the young audiences for family audiences and that had gone quite well we set up this sort of space agency I'm really into space and science and it all spiraled out of control by me basically going around telling a lot of people that I was the director of human spaceflight operations for the unlimited space agency and I like to describe it as like an ongoing performance art project some people took it sort of played along and took it really seriously worked with a lot of the other space agencies you might have heard of some of them like the European Space Agency or NASA and that <laughs> sort of stuff I'd been doing that work and someone said oh you should join this committee which we, we want to get more work for families in a, in a live setting into a broadcast setting and the children's media conference is basically where all of the telly producers of kids stuff in the UK come together and it's like their big conference and the committee program it and i ran a a session for that so this is the honest part of it basically some bloke saw me talking about theater and went you're a director yeah i need a director for the christmas shows on the cbb's channel could you do that and i remember looking at my friend and colleague amy at the time going sort of just mouthing at each other is he serious and uh i said well yeah i can I can do that. And he phoned me the next day. I thought I'm never hearing from him again. He phoned me the next day and said, yeah, yeah. so uh, do you want to do that? And I was like, yeah, sounds like well, a production of A Christmas Carol for the under sevens. Yeah, I'll, I'll do that. Sounds amazing. <laughs> at that stage, the senior producers and the exec producer at the BBC did get involved and basically do like their due diligence. Like, Who the fuck is this guy that you've got coming in? But I had a lot of support from a lot of people that I worked with in the industry at the time. So it came about by chance, really. Mm. Yeah. Then went in, brought in a really beautiful team of creatives and people and people that the TV people both didn't understand, but also adored because we made this incredible show in, we had literally five days to rehearse the show, went onto the Crucible stage, a version of uh, A Christmas Carol, and it was great and didn't fuck it up. So they asked me back to do it again. And we did that for seven years. And it's one of my favorite things, actually, because that's the sort of large scale show. These shows went on to big number one stages they were filmed like multi-camera mm. outside broadcasts or and then they go out on the bbc on both the cbb's channel and then bbc one all over the christmas period so the work that we were writing and making was being seen by literally millions of people and which is amazing it was really really cool i'm very proud of those shows actually yeah um, we always tried to make sure that the social messaging inside them was really important as well so like we had the austerity we did a version of the snow every year they'd come to us and go so this year we'd like to do a version of the snow queen and we go okay that's our austerity show that's our theresa may this is the snow queen show we want to do a version of the nutcracker okay that's our brexit show so you can watch them just go yeah it's a beautiful family christmas show but also if you want to read underneath mm. we did my favorite was a version of thumbelina which was basically our me too show and put a huge pride parade on stage and you can you can watch this and not see it or for the people that need and want to see it they can go i saw that i saw you did that i loved that thank you you've been you were representing me today <laughs> that's amazing Hello, it's Jamie here. You may have heard this advert several times before, but if not, this is basically just me taking a minute to remind you guys 
that if you're enjoying the podcast, there are a number of things you can do to help us keep growing. Now, as many of you might be aware, the podcasting landscape is incredibly saturated. And I mean, there's lots of podcasts. We all love podcasts. But it's very difficult for independent podcasts like us to sometimes break through and to be noticed. So doing things like sharing us on social media, word of mouth, and just telling friends and family to listen, or even leaving us a little five-star review on places like Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts go so far in helping us to keep growing. Me and Elliot adore this podcast. We love making this podcast. So if you're able to help in any way by doing something like that, we'd be incredibly grateful, not just for our podcast, but if you love any independent podcast, please try and give them a wee share or give them a review because it it goes so far. Another thing you can do if you enjoy the podcast as well, and we appreciate that this is a very difficult time, but if you're enjoying this podcast and you want to help us, you can donate as little or as much as you like to our Patreon page, and you can do that by going to patreon.com slash justgetarealjob, or you can click the link in the show notes. Anything you can afford, we are very grateful for. Thank you for your continued support, and I hope you enjoy the rest of today's episode. I know I'm going to ask you about the space stuff in a sec, but before that, because you just made me another question I wanted to ask, which you're talking about, like, sort of putting, I was going to say, like, important messages. I guess it is an important message, but and like, sort of social messaging and stuff. And that's been a big part of your work and Unlimited Theatre's work, hasn't it? Like, I, I was listening to one of the interviews you did a couple of years ago, and you were talking about how, like, people used to say, like, why don't you just change the world? Because you guys used to think you sort of pretentious saying that. But mm. how, how much has that played a factor or a part in sort of the stories you told of the last 27 years. Massively. And I love that you've brought that up. It's one of, it was a real light bulb moment for me and for us, because we used to literally write down on our mission statement, we're not trying to change the world because we were scared of people going, Ugh. and yeah, another artist just went, what's the point of you doing stuff if you're not going to be trying to change the world? And it's like, okay, yeah, cool. So now, and for a long time now, we've always written we're trying to change the world even mm. a little bit for the better and that's what we're sort of making this invitation for audiences to do and to, to come with us on this journey is yeah why wouldn't you I suppose it's what stories stories are how we describe the world to each other they're how we explain ourselves to each other they're how we learn about each other's about how we create empathy and the world needs empathy even mm. more than ever it feels at the moment yeah story storytelling is basically a way of creating empathy so for sure no i totally agree and i think this might tie into the stuff we're about to talk about with the whole space thing but i love what i love is when i think i'm maybe like this because my mum's a primary school teacher and my dad's a scientist but hmm. i love when the arts and because i'm totally in the i work in telly and i'm i'm one of the I'm, you know what i mean i'm pretty much my whole life is a creative industry really this podcast whatever but what I love is when art mixes with other things in the world that improve the society. So like things like science or education. And I, I think we need to do more as a society to involve the arts in other parts of our sectors and other jobs and, you know, draw on people's creativity to help with other things. But I suppose what's so interesting is the way that you combined art and science. And like, do you want to sort of tell us a bit more about that? With like, I've totally blanked the name of the company as well, but what's the sister company called, the space stuff? The Unlimited Space Agency. Yeah, there you go. <clears throat> so it came about because, so when I was a kid, I was always told I was shit at science. I was literally told, you've got to stop doing physics, you're terrible at it, you've got to stop doing, stop coming to my chemistry classes, you're really annoying. I was always told that, you know, English was my thing, and even though I couldn't do theatre, 
because that wasn't a taught subject at the time. That was the thing. That was the only thing I was getting any feedback as a kid that I was any good at. And I think that's a very common experience for young people in whatever it is that they're good at, right? It's like you're often told you're shit at that. That's not for you. This is what you should do. And when we were making a show, and this is maybe 2005, and it started as four of us were making the show at the time. We said, the thing I'm interested in is one of us was interested in the Wombles. One of us was interested in Crufts. One of us was interested in, I can't remember what it was, but what, uh, one of the stories that came was this story of the Philadelphia experiment, which is an as yet unproven conspiracy theory in which the American Navy were teleporting battleships. So there's this story, there's these stories of these battleships disappearing and then reappearing in other places. And when they reappear, the crew are variously melted in with the hull or on fire and all this sort of stuff. I think what it was really was that the US Navy were looking at cloaking their battleships from radar. But there's always, but anyway, as a result of looking at this story, it turned out that teleportation is a real thing. In quantum physics, you can teleport small objects. I'm not going to go into that because that's a whole show that we made as a result <laughs> of this. But we found out that on the campus, literally just around the corner from where we were rehearsing at the University of Leeds, where we were in residence at the time, was a professor of quantum information science, literally phoned him up and or maybe emailed him and said, can you tell us about teleportation? He said, yeah, where are you? He said, just around the corner. He said, I'll come over. I'll be there in half an hour. Now, that relationship then lasted for years in which he basically blew our minds explaining to us. In, he was so patient with us, basically explaining how objects do exist in a minimum of two different places at the same moment in time. This is an absolutely provable fact that teleportation is possible. And basically that the world is in a version of itself that is true that i had never ever understood and mm. at one point when he was explaining this to us he he literally sort of broke off and said to almost himself i don't understand why i wasn't told this when i was 14 it really isn't difficult and it was a light bulb moment again for me going yeah like gravity is weird right gravity is really weird but no one you can see it at work and no one you're told it at, at age whatever five what gravity is and so even though it's really weird you go well, I know what that is. So it's that's fine. I'm fine with that. We shouldn't be because it's really weird. But I was thinking, well, look, if we can explain quantum physics, this whole way of understanding the universe that you're never explained <laughs> unless you make it to the second year of a university degree in physics. And I didn't do that. But maybe I could do that. Maybe we could help other people to have this incredible light bulb moment experience of understanding the world in a different way through storytelling and through art. So that was where it all started. And yeah. It's just sort of spiraled from there. What I like about it is not only sort of explaining, using our skill as artists to explain mm. complex ideas from science to a, a, a what I suppose people call a lay audience or a general audience, but it's also the biggest part of that for me is, you know, a lot of these leading edge re ideas from research are things that are going to arrive during most of our lifetimes. And they are going to have a direct impact on the world, the society, the lives that we lead. So we should be involved in those conversations about who has access to those technologies, who's funding those technologies. What are we going to do with them that might be not necessarily about just commercializing or making money out of them? So how can we create an environment where more of us are involved in those conversations? And that's where art and science, I think, can really work interestingly together. But also, in a very practical way, it means that we've been working as a company across sectors and in different places to get the work supported and funded. And it means that we've not been wholly reliant on an arts funding environment for a big part of the, the time that we've been operating as a company to make that work. And in honesty, other sectors 
value you as an artist much more than our sector values artists when we go and work in research or academia or science or other cultural sectors and organizations museums whatever they go you're amazing your work's really great in our sector a lot of the time particularly once you get into the middle of a career i think it feels people get really sniffy about you know, mm. that what... so i've really so yeah meeting more people is probably the key inside there and coming into contact with lots of different ideas yeah that's so interesting that i've never thought about it like that quite before like you know just the idea that we need to try we i say we as in like a sort of as an industry to try and work more closely with other sectors and I, I think it's just such a it makes so much sense and i think it also highlights the lack of creativity that maybe other sectors don't know how to harness as well because we we don't fund or value the arts enough in education so they're probably like wow because you know what i mean they don't the way that we operate as a society doesn't maybe give a lot of people the the opportunity to, to be creative and use those skills you develop from being a creative in that sector wow and that's really it's a whole it's very it's a very interesting area i 100 percent recommend it to yeah yeah get out there mm. meet those people like we blow their minds in the way that they blow our minds is the thing so yeah yeah well this would be a good question for you and i know you haven't started your new chapter yet but what have you sort of learned in the creative industries that you think you can take into your new vacation a vacation vocation i should say vocation you're saying that because i'm becoming a student again is that what it is? it's not <laughs> it's not a holiday Jamie. i know <laughs> <laughs> that's a good question i have had to think about that for myself a lot as well because it's kind of scary so at a personal level, I feel like you were talking earlier, one of my job titles is chief executive. I am really passionate about leadership and what it is to be a leader, how you effectively lead. And I've learned a lot from a lot of people in this sector, but also from other sectors about what makes a good leader. And I like to think and I hope and I think I think most of my colleagues would would agree. I'm a pretty good leader, which is mostly about creating environments for people in which they feel they can do their most work. It's like high trust, low blame environments for people mm. with skills to come in and just do their job really well. You know, what is it that we can do to make your this working environment the place where you can do your best work? So I think that's massively translatable into other sectors. I suppose, you know, you can go, well, that's a directing skill. And directing is mostly about management of a room, in honesty. You know, you can come with a vision to it, but actually you need a whole... I, what I need a whole load of other this is what I've learned I can't do it on my own I love and I need to work with other brilliant people and as often as possible with people that are much better than me they're the people that I want to be working with because they bring so much that you would that you can't do it's, it's, the, the theatre sector the creative industries are amazing for combining really deep skills and experience in very specific ways, lighting designers, stage designers, video designers, actors, stage management, uh, production managers. All of those people have really deep understanding and skills that they've developed over quite long periods of time when you get to our age that only make sense together. So collaboration, I know that's probably like a cliched thing, but really not wanting to take credit for all of those mm. people's work as a director, but going, no, seriously, it's us. How could, how do, we're the sort of gang doing it. So collaboration, leadership, and what you were talking about earlier, actually, we might as it's about process. You can't set an outcome. What's the line? There's a line I really like about uh, if the outcome is more important than the process, then no, I'm not going to do it. Well, I'm not going to do it justice. But basically, process is all because 
as long as you know like the effect that you want something to have on something what it is exactly will only come about through the process that you go through so you design a good process you know that you're going mm. through a process that there's going to be change that happens staying responsive staying reflective trusting the people that you're working with not focusing on mistakes mistakes will happen and beautiful things can come out of them the beautiful thing will be made as a result of you going through that process authentically and with generosity and that's where success is i think you know that's such a a nice answer because i was my next question was going to be about how you have run a company and what you what you think you'd need to do to do that and you've kind of answered both questions very articulately at the same time but i totally agree with all what you're saying and i think as a younger person that thinks about the sort of place I'd like to work, I often think like, I want to work somewhere where I'm not going to be judged too much for a mistake. Like, I know people make mistakes, but I want to learn how to not make the mistake again and feel like I can make a mistake because you can't actually be a good employee without making mistakes. Or you're, because one, you're not learning two, well, we're human. So for the moment, anyway, you know, mistakes are going to happen. I don't know if AI is going to fix all that, but let's not even get into that. <laughs> yeah, no, I 100% agree. You know, that's. You, we've just said it yeah, yeah. i 100% agree mm. well i started to wrap things up because i know we're speaking for an hour i've got a couple more questions for you Let, i want to talk about the grants thing that you guys are setting up as you leave because obviously that's very important we'll link all that under the podcast but tell us about how that's all going to work again this was part of the endings what makes a good ending and as an artist and founder-led company it's always been important to us and to like the many many people that make up this company trustees collaborators, current members of staff, ex-members of staff, all the artists that have come through. What is the legacy of this company? Not just for what people take out into the world in the way that this is hopefully how they can spread the way that we work into all the other organizations they go into, but because we're writing our own ending and because we've been very well run as an organization by all the people that have worked inside it, we have a not insignificant amount of reserves, which you're supposed to have as a charity, right? The rainy day stuff, but we've built them up over a long period of time and also supplemented by a very generous gift from someone that wanted to support us keeping going, but has agreed that a good way for us to do that would actually be to do this. So we have a not insignificant amount of money, which we are going to put into grants, easy to apply for, minimal reporting, grants for artists, working in collaborative practice to make new work. And they're all based on experiences that we had as artists and as a company growing up. So for example, in this first round of awards, which will go live in January, 2024, we have our starting out grants. It's two grants of two and a half thousand pounds each for artists to buy equipment or kit that would significantly enhance their practice and or business model, which is based on the fact that in 1997, when we were starting out, we successfully applied to a grant to the Princess Youth Business Trust. They gave us two and a half thousand pounds. We could buy our first computer. You would find our first computer so hilarious to see Jamie. And digital video recorder, which we use for years, which helps mm. us create projects in general. So there's that. We've got a five thousand pound, two five thousand pound awards for artists to just get together at the beginning before they've even got an idea to spend time together we used to call this our unlab our laboratory where we all know this as artists i think you know you're supposed to write a proposal for someone 
going, this is what I'm going to do. And this is what I'm going to, and this is how I'm going to do it. And the outcomes will be this. Yeah. But before you get to that, you've got to have had the idea and worked out what it is. And particularly as a group or a company of artists, Mm. you've got to have time to spend together to do that. So what we always used to do was be to create time for us through doing other projects that would be okay. So we've got a whole week together to just eat, sleep, not sleep together, sleep in the same place together, but be together and to begin to imagine, to dream what the next projects that we might make would be. So there's two awards at £5,000 to allow companies of artists to do that. And then one bigger award of £10,000, which we're calling the Unlock Award, which is for mid-career artists who are looking to work a, a scale of the ambitious sort of work that we've got to a stage that we can make now. Now that £10,000 mm. won't fund that whole project, but it will we hope unlock other forms of support for people to make work at a sort of scale Mm. the ambition that we have and in this instance we're talking about the science work there'll be different in the future versions of what this is but this is to support a sci art project that's working at that sort of scale and that's about legacy it's about wanting to help artists that wouldn't get that support otherwise at a time when it is really hard particularly hard it feels at the moment to get the support with minimal strings attached so yeah that's what we're doing that's amazing that what an incredible legacy to leave and what i love about it is that you're using a lot of your own experiences to think what would we have needed when Mm. we were coming up and i think that's such a brilliant thing and we'll link all this in the show notes of the podcast but no i hope that all goes well it's such a it's a lovely way i love that you're ending on your own terms as well it's like a a really nice sort of story thanks jamie before i sort of wrap things up i've got two more questions but obviously the name of this podcast Let's just get a real job. You spoke about the dark year when you were working all these jobs. What's the worst part-time job or quote real job, which is a horrible word, that you had to work to support yourself as an artist? There's a company in Yorkshire called Proper Job Theatre Company run by two brilliant people at the moment, Chloe and Jamie Bill. I've never thought of any job that I've had as being a bad job. There are things that I prefer not to have been doing, but I'm going to sound a bit fucking sanctimonious here, maybe. <laughs> It's like if you're lucky enough to be able to do the thing that you want to do alongside another job, then that's the payoff, if that makes sense. It's like Mm. we've all got to pay the bills. We've got there's a very practical part to being in the world. Right. I've always really valued having work. I've never really minded what it is. The fact that someone would pay me to to do work is really valued and done some really done some really strange jobs but i've really i've really enjoyed getting paid at the end of them if that makes sense (laughs) so i wouldn't think of any of them as being bad is that a shit answer no you know it's like i've had that one quite a few times recently where people and i've been thinking about this jay but like i might actually reword this question slightly in the future instead of saying worst i might say like what's the strangest or funniest or something just because I think sometimes you attach too much negativity to it. But so, for some people love this question, though, because I think they love to hear that other people have had to work jobs and at some point that they might be in now and it makes them feel a bit better type thing. There's definitely, jo- yeah, there's definitely very functional jobs that I have really haven't enjoyed. But like I say, you get paid. So it's like, I'll do that job. <laughs> my my favourite sort of ridiculous job that I hated in the, in the moment, but is hilarious, you know, laugh about it now at the time, it was terrible, was... Uh, world we used to do a lot of work around every year we do a work around world aids day and claire my colleague would always organize this and it was about raising awareness but it was a way of us 
getting paid to then make other projects as well. And one year I was basically bouncing around Leeds dressed as a giant condom. I was inside this <laughs> giant condom suit that we'd made. Paul was with me dressed as chlamydia. And that was that was definitely a moment of going, you're going to make me put that on. You want me to put this on. Yeah. And and go over there and, and greet people. And okay, fine. I'm a condom today. That's one that I both love is in. I don't put it on my CV. <laughs> it's up there on your LinkedIn bio, for sure. I'm going to add it now, actually. Yeah. <laughs> well, Jay, this is quite a nice question to end on because you're about to go off and start a new career. But to anyone that's about to maybe get into this industry and the particular the part of the industry you've been working in for the last 27 years or so, it's almost like you're handing the baton on. But what would your advice be for them? I knew you were going to ask me this and I've thought about it and I was hoping that maybe something would come up in sort of the moment. It would be, <laughs> what is the one thing? It's going to probably be a bit cliche. People have said it before. You referenced it earlier. It's like about enjoying the work. None of us get paid enough to not be in, in this sector. Well, very few of us, but most of us don't get paid well enough to not be enjoying the work that you're doing. So do that. More importantly than that, I would well, also, it's very rare that anyone's ever dying. So there's a lot of people that behave really badly in our sector or mm. behave in a really overly privileged way, like this is life and death. It's not. It's a real privilege to be able to work here and we should be being paid for our work. That is an important part of it. But please don't be a dick. It's not life and death. If someone is dying, then take it seriously 100%, but still don't be a dick about it. But more than all of that, I suppose, is stay curious. It's like always be interested in the work that you're doing if you're not then maybe sort of recognize that and go look this isn't interesting to me but by staying curious and interested you'll also stay empathetic because it will be one of the best pieces of advice a director ever gave to me was when you're directing and an actor isn't doing what you're expecting them to do the first question to ask yourself is what is it that i am doing that's making them behave in that way and that helps me stay curious it's like what am i doing mm. that what what am i not understanding what is it that i what is the good question i need to ask in order to better understand why that person isn't being the best version of themselves that they can be and you can apply that to anything and that ties into what we said earlier about the mistakes thing like if i think it was a steve's jo steve jobs video i saw came up on like instagram reels the other day but it's him talking about if his employers made a mistake the hardest lesson is not to be like angry at them for making a mistake but to think about what can i do to help them avoid this mistake in future and it's basically what you just said the exact same thing as what you said and i thought that's so interesting on which point actually on our website which is unlimited.earth our brilliant executive director has collated and put all of the documents that you could ever possibly need if you were running your own company. They're like white label documents, mm. templates, documents of budgets, all the policies you could ever need, all of the... Go and have a look. It's, a, it's under resources at unlimited.earth. Yeah. Well, there's a link the point is this podcast. So just click on that link and you'll be able to find that very quickly. Yeah. But the point is that we, we spent 27 years basically learning how to do stuff. And a lot of that is through making mistakes or getting it wrong. So mm. you don't need to make all the mistakes that we <laughs> made here's a way of avoiding the best part of them but uh, it's an incredible resource if people yeah. are, are needing that stuff oh well jay 
Can I just say thank you so much for this conversation? It's it's a privilege to get to sit here, like a young, quite a young age still, and get to speak to people like yourself about your career. And it's an amazing legacy that you guys are leaving. Thank you very much for all the work you've done over the last 27 years and all the best with your next adventure. Oh, thank you, Jamie. That's really beautiful of you to say. And I really value the fact that you're doing this and have invited me on to share that. But also, I hope it really is useful, not just what I'm doing, but the fact that you're doing it is very very cool yeah thank you my pleasure well there you go that was episode 119 of just get a real job thank you to jay for his time once again go and check out the links in the show notes to find out a bit more about the grant system as well or to just find out a bit more about jay and the work unlimited fear to do i meant to say this in the intro of the podcast and because it was a bit longer than usual because I was mentioning our third year anniversary and stuff I forgot but I wanted to mention Doctors Without Borders who are a non-governmental organisation that specialise in helping helping give sort of medical support in conflicts and with epidemics across the world and they're currently running a conflict appeal to help in places like Yemen, Gaza, Ukraine. There's a lot of horrible things going on in the world right now, as I'm sure everyone that has a telly or has access to the internet is aware of. I think some of the stuff coming out of Gaza at the moment is particularly distressing, but Doctors Without Borders is an incredible organisation, and if you can afford to spare anything, then there's a link to their website and conflict appeal in the show notes so i'd urge you to go and check that out if you can afford to do so and yeah as always if you're enjoying this podcast be sure to subscribe if you're listening on spotify or apple Podcasts. shares on social media tell friends and family to listen all the usual stuff we say every week but as always thank you for listening thank you again for your support over the last few years thank you to elliot's support over the last three years i couldn't do this without him thank you to amy who has done the artwork for this podcast over the last three years as well and thank you again to you the listener for everything you've given us but i hope you have a lovely week and we'll be back again next week with another brilliant episode of just get a real job but until then, have a good one, folks. Just get a real job.